Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge. Today we're discussing the Hamilton Tiger Cats adding Grey Cup winning head coach Scott Milanovic to the coaching staff. Simon Fraser University's football program potentially being reinstated. The Ottawa Redblacks signing Braylon Addison. Craig Dickinson stating the Riders offense will run the ball more in 2023. And the Cats releasing a former first overall draft pick. But first, Bo Levi Mitchell and Cody Fajardo addressed the media for the first time at training camp with their new East Division teams. Mitchell spoke about the pre-existing culture in Hamilton and wanting to prove he belongs, while Fajardo talked about his comfort level with Jason Moss and wanting to prove all of his haters wrong. What did you make of those comments, Hodge? Well, let's start off with let's start off with Bo. And Bo has been in this league for a long time. He knows how to speak to the media. He is a savvy, intelligent guy, a very mature guy. And it's clear why the club brought him in from a leadership standpoint. I also thought Orlando Steinauer's comments were short and very clear. When asked about Bo, he said, this is a quote, football means a lot to him. He's a competitor. He's going to hold people accountable. He wants to be held accountable close quote. I don't know if that's him maybe throwing some shade at Dane Evans way, who maybe wasn't keeping himself accountable, maybe wasn't keeping others accountable, but it's clear that Bo has arrived in Hamilton and is ready to take that leadership role by the horns. I also thought it was interesting. He was asked about the Calgary Stampeders immediately, and he wouldn't even say the name Calgary, wouldn't even say the name Stampeders. He simply said, I'm just talking about the team that I'm on and controlled that. And then instead of answering the question, kind of answered a different question. Cody Fajardo ran into the question where he wasn't even really asked about the riders. He was just, he, he ran into the question with, with a sword drawn and, and, and <laughs> oh my goodness, he, and to his credit, he said lots of great stuff about learning French and he ordered breakfast uh, in, in French and he got a bagel with, with fromage and, and if, and, and, you know, obviously it's great that he's learning the local language and embracing the culture in Montreal. But in one media availability, he he came out and he basically said, you know, step one, I'm here to prove my haters wrong. Step two, he admitted they had a down year with the riders in 2023 or in 2022. And then thirdly, he said 500, which is the record the Owls have had the last two years isn't good enough like this is a team that just lost a ton of talent due to an off-season ownership crisis and he's out here talking about how going nine and nine would not be good enough and then he also said dunkster that they have to start well because they're talking about getting fans back and the optimism about the new coach the new owner all that stuff new president and he straight up says well we we have to start well so when you talk about adding pressure bully by mitchell when it came to pressure talked only about putting pressure on himself to succeed Cody Fajardo talked about putting pressure 
on the team to not only win more games than they lose, but to win them early, which is a big, big goal for a team that frankly lost a lot of talent. And I thought it was wild that he talked about trying to prove his haters wrong. That said, you know, good for him. He's entitled to say what he wants to say. Now he's got to go out there and prove it. The major difference here for me, Hodge, is the proven championship mentality of Bo Levi Mitchell and the adjustment that he's making in his career to a new team and a new city, as you alluded to. Didn't even want to mention or talk about anything related to the Calgary Stampeders. He has wiped that slate clean, and he wants to prove himself both as a player on the field and as a leader to that Tiger Cats locker room. Meanwhile, you have Fajardo still talking about and alluding to his time with the Riders. And this is something that I talked about throughout the season last year and even in the offseason that I felt like Fajardo needed to either go to a mental coach or change his thinking here. But it's very clear that the same thinking has gone with him from Saskatchewan to Montreal because he's still talking about his time there. Bo Levi Mitchell was a superstar with the Stampeders for a decade. He won multiple Grey Cups, multiple CFL MOP awards, and is a legend in that franchise forever And he won't talk about any of that time there because he's so focused on the present moment while Fajardo is still thinking about what has happened in the past. In pro football, all that you can be worried about and so cliche is the next play. And that's where I think you see the difference in mentality here, a championship mentality at that between Mitchell and Fajardo. And I think Mitchell does a great job of controlling these media scrums, deflecting pressure, as you said, away from his teammates and team overall, and putting more of it on himself, where Fajardo just opens up his mouth and says, fill me up with all this pressure, I'll deal with it. But that did not work well for him last year. I think he needs to be more savvy in these media scrums. Don't get me wrong. It's great when he says this stuff. Hodge, you know it very well, too, for 3.nation.com and the rest of the media when he's very open. But to me, it's clear that he hasn't learned anything better in terms of a mental mindset and approach to a season after what had happened, especially last year in Saskatchewan and him being ushered out of town after being anointed the franchise guy and everybody loving up on him in 2019 and 2021. So that, to me, is what stands out about the first time that these two quarterbacks address the media at training camp. Yeah, I'm not cheering for or against Cody Fajardo. And for anyone who accuses us of being Cody Fajardo haters, nothing would be better for us as a publication than if Cody Fajardo popped off for an MLP season. And frankly, nothing would be better for the CFL because as Fajardo alluded to, that new crew of Pierre-Carl Pelado who's the new owner, they've got the new president, new coach, new everything. That club needs some positive momentum after what they went through the last certainly six months with Gary Stern departing as the minority owner of the team, the CFL having to step in and take control of that franchise, the uncertainty, the doubt that surrounded that franchise. There were some scary moments, I think, for that club in January. Now, I think it's worked out very well, and by all accounts, they've, they've hit the ground running. But uh, nothing would be better for the for the Montreal Alouettes, at least in my view, for for right Cody Fajardo to to have a 2019 like season where he leads the team to a first place finish. By the way, the Montreal Alouettes not only have they not won a great cup, 
since 2010. They've also not finished first in their division in over a decade, which is wild to say after they finished first in the East seemingly every year for the first decade of the 2000s. So this is a franchise that needs to get butts in seats and they need to win, win fans back because they haven't done a lot of winning on the field, certainly for the last 10 years. But that being said, Dunk, yes, I was surprised at how little Cody Fajardo seemed to have learned from his days in Regina. And I think Cody Fajardo is an extremely kind hearted person. He seems like a very personable, affable guy. And we love honesty in the media because some players are not honest and that makes our job tougher. But with that being said, you mentioned the leadership championship mindset. And I think that's what's missing from Cody Fajardo. When he talks to the media, he's talking to the media like he's talking to his buddies in high school. And that's not what you need to do. You need to step up and be a better leader and someone who is going to focus on the present. He didn't have to say the word riders. He didn't have to say the word haters. And he said those words largely unprompted. And he said them early in his availability. He could have easily just said, look, I'm flushing the past. I don't care where I was in the past. I'm here in Montreal. We're here to win a Grey Cup. And I'm going to hold myself to a high standard to ensure that we get there. Period. That's what Bolivar Mitchell said in Hamilton. And that's easily what Cody Fajardo could have said in the Belle Provence. For anyone that wants to think that 3 could be a hater of Cody Fajardo, I just want to point to all of our content hyping him up throughout that 2019 season because he earned it. And all we've done since is largely write about what he has said and used his quotes. And then now this is our analysis on top of it. And Hodge, I think it's warranted and you somewhat alluded to this that we're not cheering for or against anybody. And I think largely Cody Fajardo in his dealings with the media and even fans in Saskatchewan was so good. He had time for lots of people. He did not big time anybody from what I had heard. He had treated me very well personally until it turned the other way where he had to deal with some adversity. And that's where I think that's a missed opportunity. If he didn't change his mindset going into the season, there's no real proof of that yet. Perhaps it will when the games start, but we're not cheering for or against anybody. I really think that needs to be stated and doubled down on. And I just hope that Fajardo can play some great ball because I think he has that kind of capability. I actually think, Montreal potentially got a steal and a great value in adding Cody Fajardo versus potentially re-signing Trevor Harris for $500,000 or even more. That's a contract he got with Saskatchewan for 2023. It was $500,000. Cody Fajardo can make up to $425,000 if he plays and starts all 18 games. He's got to make about $54,000 of that in playtime. So I like the value for Montreal, and I do think Cody Fajardo went healthy has a lot of upside to be a really good quarterback in this league because he's shown it in the past. Well, one final thought I will share on this is when you let in that outside noise to build you up like Cody Fajardo did in 2019, it's impossible then to shut it out, right? When the narrative and and the energy surrounding you turns negative as it did certainly in 2022 to a lesser extent in 2021, for Cody Fajardo. So this is a quote that struck me when I was talking to Anthony Bennett out of the University of Regina at the CFL Combine. I'm paraphrasing, but essentially he said, as a player, you have to ignore the media because the media will love you until they get the chance to shoot you down. 
And it's wild to me that he learned that as a college player, originally at Florida Atlantic, uh, before moving on to the University of Virginia. He's coming out. Yeah, he was 26, one of the oldest players in the draft, but he's still going into a CFL rookie season, ended up being a first round pick to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. But clearly he's someone who gets it. As a prospect, he was saying, I'm not going to let the media hype and positive energy build me up because if I do that, they're going to potentially, if I do badly or something bad happens, going to use that exact same power that they have over me in a positive way to turn it negative. So he's shutting out all the noise as a CFL rookie, and Cody Fajardo might be smart to do the same thing. But we'll have to wait and see. If Cody Fajardo comes out this season and plays some fantastic ball, we will be the first ones to heap praise on Mr. Fajardo in his new digs. Dunk, I was at training camp with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers on day one, and I know you were in Guelph to check out the Toronto Argonauts training camp this week. What stood out to you with the Boatmen? It had to be Chad Kelly, and he was geared up. He had his helmet on, shoulder pads, and pants, and for the uninitiated, players did not have to have that on during practice. He was one of a handful before they actually put the shoulder pads on about halfway through their practice that I was at at Alumni Stadium, but he was geared up from the get-go, and I think he's really treating this opportunity in the right way. I talked to some people around the Toronto Argonauts on the coaching staff and in the personnel department as well, and you know even the support staff, and by all accounts, Chad Kelly is doing the, quote, right things, and I hate that because there's not much analysis in there when you talk about that, but some of the right things that I was told that he has done, for example, is spend a large part of his off-season in Toronto, for example, throwing to Devaris Daniels and Dejan Brissett, developing a rapport there, studying film from last year. And you could see the vocal leadership difference in Chad Kelly at training camp, albeit it was only one practice compared to last season, though, because McLeod Bethel-Thompson isn't there anymore. He was really encouraging his teammates play after play and wasn't letting them have it if there was a bad play in between, but it was consistent. So that's what I found and then also noticed about Chad Kelly, who is getting lots of media hype, speaking of that subject, from us and many others around the league covering the CFL. And I think it's warranted based on what he's done in the offseason and now into training camp, but ultimately he's going to have to prove it on the field. The one other note that really stood out to me was Ben Holmes can absolutely sling the rock and the Argos are rightly high on him. They have some other quarterbacks in camp that they like as well, but Ben Holmes to me seems like a guy that has some great upside as a QB who can continue to develop the CFL level. And if you think of it, there was a lot of people around free agency and perhaps even still so maybe Argos fans as well that thought that the Argos should go out and sign a veteran backup quarterback. But when you look at that market right now, or even during free agency, there wasn't really anybody super sexier that had a lot of experience that they could go and get. So they're going in house with Chad Kelly, obviously as the starter and also Ben Holmes, presumably as the backup, Ryan Scott is also there as well, who was the best player you could argue in spring football, the last couple of seasons. So they like him, they're going with the guys in house and that they've developed and that know Ryan Dinwiddie's system and Pete Costanza's system as well. So I like that shift. And because they're going cheaper at quarterback, that team is loaded. You talked about Florin or Milade multiple times on this podcast, the highest paid defensive end. Well, one of the reasons they have the money to do it is because 
Chad Kelly's contract is sort of earn as you start, so to speak, or earn as you produce, to put it in other terms. So the Argos got a lot of depth. I think the quarterback position, it's training camp, so it's hard to tell, but looks pretty solid for the Argos. I love that you highlighted the backup quarterback spot because that is something that this team does not have, right, is experience at the CFL level at the quarterback spot. Chad Kelly has started a grand total of one CFL regular season game, (laughs) and the other quarterbacks combine for zero CFL regular season starts, which is wild. Now, as much as, I mean, you talked about maybe not having sexy names on the open market. This team could have gone and signed Antonio Pipkin, who's been a member of this team before, was with the BC Lions last year. Uh, they could have gone out and signed uh, the Canadian out of UBC, who was there last year. Michael uh, or who's, who's drafted the team. Yeah, Michael O'Connor, who's drafted to the team in 2019, has since been a member of the Calgary Stampeders and BC Lions. They didn't get O'Connor. They didn't get Pipkin. They went ahead, and they, they've rolled the dice. And, and on the one side, I get that that's risky. I'm, I guess, maybe more of a risk-averse kind of person. I would per- personally, if I was running that team, go out and get a veteran arm like that. But I also see the counter-argument, which is kind of what you know, you and, and especially JC have talked about on the show before, which is, well, why keep embracing quarterbacks who you know on their best day are going to be average and on their worst day are going to play badly? Like Antonio Pipkin has been in this league long enough. You know he's not realistically going to improve. Michael O'Connor hasn't played as much. I'd like to think that he could maybe improve, but he's also not in a camp right now, which says a lot about, at least right now, how the nine teams across the CFL see him. Why not try to turn over as many rocks as you possibly can to try to find a gem, so to speak? And if you like Ben Olm's arm talent, then I'm excited to see him. He's an older guy. He's already 28 years old. At some point, it's kind of got to happen if it's going to happen. So if Chad Kelly gets hurt, I think we'll see that opportunity because right now, Ben Holmes is one play away from being a starting quarterback in the CFL, which if you're an Argos fan, could be really exciting. Also a little scary, given the fact that, again, as of now, he's done nothing in this league. The upside to me is worth the risk. And Haji, I know you want to keep it moving here, but it is something that I hope we see more and more across the CFL is giving quarterbacks an opportunity when you know that the guys on the street or the guys that have been in around that 500 mark, that's what they are. So I think from the Argo standpoint, this is definitely calculated. And they're looking at this like, all right, Chad Kelly knows our offense. Ben Holmes knows our offense and has been here for an entire season, just like Kelly has. And yes, they don't have that experience, but you can also make an argument that we don't know what their potential is because we haven't seen them play. So it could be untapped. It could be really high, but it could also be really low. I just really like the approach. And if you look at it from a team building aspect, it allows you to load up at other positions. And I think the Argos have created a lot of depth throughout that roster, especially among their Canadians. The one thing that I would like to see from the Argos, if I'm looking at their offense, because I think their defense could be really good, is that vertical stretch threat, a guy that can legitimately burn and take the top off of the defense. I think that would really help Chad Kelly or Ben Holmes those guys throwing the football, they need that speed threat. I think Dijon Brissett could be that, so the Argos are hoping that he'll flash, but there are some other Americans there that I think the Argos are hoping, I know the Argos are hoping, will pop during training camp and earn the ability to do that. 
The Hamilton Tiger Cats finalized their coaching staff with the notable additions of Jeff Reinbold, who replaces Craig Butler as their special teams coordinator, and Scott Milanovic, who will serve as a senior assistant coach. Who is the bigger addition, Reinbold or Milanovic, and why? It has to be Milanovic because it puts so much pressure on Tommy Condell, whether the Tiger Cats will admit that or not. And there's no way Orlando Steinauer will. I don't think Tommy Condell will. I don't think Scott Milanovic will as well because they all want to get along at this point. Now, it's important to know that Orlando Steinauer and Scott Milanovic have an existing relationship going back to 2012. Milanovic was brought in as the Argos head coach. And of course, that was the year of the 100th Grey Cup and Milanovic kept Steinauer on his staff as a defensive backs coach and they won the CFL championship. And then following that season, Steinauer went to Hamilton where he's been ever since, except for one year in 2017 where he was at Fresno state. So there is that relationship there. And I think you can never have too many smart football minds, especially with experience at the quarterback position. And it can only sharpen the tiger cats offense overall. So I think Milanovic is the bigger addition because he's new and sexy and Reinbold has been there before, even though he's really good. I agree with that, Duncan. It certainly, I think, puts pressure on Tommy Condell to get that offense running in a hurry. Condell and Bolivar Mitchell have worked very closely this offseason and been in constant communication. I know when Bo signed in Hamilton, he made jokes about Tommy Condell trying to get him to buy a house that was next door to his so that they could be that close and just talk all the time and have slumber parties and do all that kind of stuff to just you know build that relationship okay I'm, I'm joking about the slumber parties but i was not joking about the next door stuff uh because they want to be on the same page and obviously it's very important for a franchise quarterback and a well-tenured offensive coordinator to be on that exact same page but bob young the owner of the hamilton tiger cats calls himself the caretaker of the hamilton tiger cats loves new shiny bright toys right he has a background in tech and if he has the opportunity to go out and get the brand new shiny toy then he's going to do it and he's quite happy in the past at least to discard previous toys look no further than henry burris getting chucked aside for zach Kalaris, or zach Kalaris getting chucked aside for jeremiah masoli or or tenured head coaches right we've had coaches who have had good runs in hamilton and they get chucked aside because Ken Austin is available, or or, or oh well, uh, get rid of Ken. Austin. June Jones is available, uh, or, or what what have you, right? That is a history of the Hamilton Tiger Cats going out and getting the shiny brand new toy. And right now, Scott Milanovic is a brand new shiny toy for the uninitiated. He was the QB coach and offensive coordinator during Anthony Calvillo's kind of renaissance years in the late two thousands with the Montreal Alouettes. Became a head coach with the Argos in twenty twelve. Won a Great Cup that year. Departed for the NFL with the Jags as their QB coach in 2017, had a three-year run there, became the head coach of the Edmonton football team in 2020, and went undefeated in that entire run dunk. <laughs> granted, granted, the, the, there was no season. and uh, At least yeah, he didn't lose a home game with Edmonton. <laughs> Hey, that's, that's that's an excellent point. He didn't lose a single home game. Uh, he left the Edmonton football team after collecting a big fat check to do nothing in 2020. Went to the Indianapolis Colts, spent two years as their QB coach. Now he's back in the CFL with the Ticats. So this is a guy who on paper has been a head, uh, CFL head coach twice. He's been an NFL QB coach twice, and he's run some extremely successful offenses in the CFL with Anthony Calvillo at the helm dating back about 15 years ago. So he's got a fantastic resume 
And if I'm Tommy Condell, I'm making sure that that offense in Hamilton is cooking the first month of the season because it would be very easy for the Ticats to make a change. Getting to the Craig Butler issue, I talked to Craig Butler this past week. The column came out this morning as to his future. He is a London, Ontario native. He played at Western University for the Mustangs, where he was a star defensive player. He has lots of coaching experience. Been coaching since 2017, but Dunk Butler is only 34 years old. He is a guy. He's got two kids. He's got a five-year-old and a two-year-old. Taking a step back from the Ticats, he said is all about family reasons, wanting to spend more time with his family. The family had lived in Hamilton for many years, signed with the team as a free agent in 2014 and played there for four years until his career was derailed and he made the transition from player to coaching. But they actually moved to London, Ontario about a year ago. So this past season, he was commuting back and forth about 90 minutes um, and sometimes staying overnight in Hamilton for some of those you know, late night, early morning type of times. And obviously for a, a young man with a young family, that is far from optimal when it comes to work-life balance and getting the opportunity to see his kids. He told me that his wife essentially was a single mom six months out of the year, and he just didn't feel as though that was fair. So kudos to him for taking a step back to be with his family. That's obviously what he wanted. I have spoken to people, and Butler just said he was open to coaching opportunities in the future, be it CFL, be it U Sports, whatever. I have spoken to other people who have speculated that Butler could be in line for a coaching position at his alma mater of Western. Greg Marshall, the fantastic head coach that that program has had for many, many years now, is not going to coach forever. And so I've also heard speculation that Butler could potentially be in line to replace him as the head coach at what has arguably been the most dominant U Sports program over the last 20 years. All due respect to Laval, who have also had a great run of success during that time. Craig Butler is a fiery competitor and one of those up and coming coaches that we hopefully can keep coaching football in Canada. He probably has the ability and upside to even go to the United States, but I think for family reasons, he'll probably stay in Canada and would make a lot of sense for Western to bring him in there. Greg Marshall will probably coach for as long as he wants and then hand the program over to someone that he really trusts. So I hope that this all works out well. For Butler, getting back to Milanovic for a second, though, it should be noted, and I know he hates talk about his contract and statuses and stuff like that, but he could have took a year off, collected his year of salary from the Jacksonville Jaguars that he was owed, played golf in Florida and done whatever he wanted, but he loves football this much that he's with the Tiger Cats. And from what I've been told, there can be offset language in these coaching contracts to essentially allow Milanovic to be paid for future years because anything that he would have earned this year would have been knocked off those checks coming in from the Jacksonville Jaguars. So he could have sat on the sidelines, done whatever he wanted, you know, with his family as well, but he's decided that he wants to continue coaching and is with the Tiger Cats. So I think it's a big addition for that team in the Steel Town. Small detail. You you said the Jags. He he was just with the Colts. I think he mixed those up. Just to be clear. Oops. Yeah, I don't know. Why I'm thinking the Jags. Was he with the Jags before the Colts? He was. He was with the Jags from 17 to 19. Then came to Edmonton. Then was with the Colts this last these past two years. By the way, the Colts connection was Marcus Brady. Marcus Brady was a backup quarterback with the Montreal Alouettes in the late 2010s, and and uh, then got into coaching. So they coached together in the CFL. Brady was the OC 
in Indianapolis in 2021 when Milanovic was hired as the QB coach. So, you know, sorry, I just wanted to touch on that. Um, I think you just misspoke. Yeah, appreciate you, Bruno. It was the Colts. And on that Marcus Brady note, Marcus Brady gave his recommendation at least to the Argonauts for Chad Kelly because Chad Kelly spent time with the Colts, I believe it was a couple seasons before he ended up being out of the NFL. So that should bode well for Kelly's future as well because Marcus Brady is still in the NFL. He was only unemployed, I think it was for less than a week before catching on where he still now is with the Philadelphia Eagles. So Hodge, appreciate your correction, my man. The five Simon Frazier University football players who filed an injunction to try to prevent the cancellation of the school's football program lost in court, but it appears as though the team has been saved after all as SFU has committed to at least exploring the reinstatement of the program. Hodge, you've been all over this story. What do you think we'll see from Simon Frazier's football team and will it be back on the field in the future? I think it will be. And this is a perfect example of losing the battle, but ultimately winning the war. Filing this injunction, the players were in court on May 1st. And I think a lot of people were anticipating a decision to be made within 24, if not 48 hours. This thing ended up lingering for 10 days. It took the judge 10 days to make a ruling on whether or not the injunction would be upheld. Now, it was defeated. That being said, what that long decision allowed for was for the supporters of this program to continue beating the drum for SFU football. And every day we talked about it on this show. We've had the news up on the site between Hall of Famers walking away from the Hall of Fame, from local politicians, football stakeholders across the country speaking out about this change. I think SFU has finally crumbled to the pressure of public opinion. They've hired Bob Copeland as a special advisor, and he's been tasked with a number of things. And I know SFU originally talked about, you know, potentially hiring somebody. Well, Bob Copeland has worked previously as a consultant for the CFL and for U Sports. So he is a very good person to have in this role. And he's been tasked with responsibilities, including the evaluation of the possibility of SFU playing exhibition football games in 2023. By the way, stakeholders last month reached out to a number of institutions in Canada and the United States and were able to informally agree upon an entire schedule for 2023. Some games, again, south of the border, many north of the border with three down U sports rules, which is a fantastic thing. The The only thing that's contingent, of course, is approval, right? They're informal agreements now. They will become formalized if and when SFU officially gets the go-ahead to play in 2023. Copeland's also been tasked with the viability of the program being reinstated in 2024 and then also initiating dialogue with select football governing bodies. To me, that means U Sports, which where he's previously consulted, though Simon Fraser did say they're not ruling out joining the NAIA, where the club previously played when it was founded back in 1965. Now, SFU and its Football Alumni Association, after the announcement from SFU saying that they are hiring Bob Copeland, said that they have agreed with the university to pursue a goal of joining U Sports in 2024, where they'd be a member of Canada West. So, Dunk, this is not done. There, there still needs to be follow-up. And Dr. Joy Johnson and her video post and by the way i give johnson credit for not just hiding behind a press release but actually going as far as to shoot a video where i think 
you know, the the tone of what is being said and the transparency is better than 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 just releasing a, a statement. A press conference might have been better. For the record, Three Down Nation requested an interview with Dr. Joy Johnson. We were we were not promised one because she is a very busy woman. We did not end up getting one, unfortunately. Uh, but she she admitted that there needs to be trust that is rebuilt between the school and the football community as a whole. One thing I love and I think is a very positive indication about the future of this program, Dunk, is they've also agreed to keep student athletes on scholarship for the duration of what would be their normal years at SFU. Previously, they'd only agreed to keep students on scholarship for 2023-2024, which to me is an indication that they do not want players transferring out. They're still happy to help players transfer out if that's still their goal. But you don't have a situation anymore where players are going, okay, I could potentially stay and hang around for you know this year, but if the program is bust, then, then I'm out of a scholarship. Now you've got a situation where players are going, okay, I know I'm going to school on scholarship no matter what. Now it's just a matter of officially getting this program back. But Dunk, I'm extremely optimistic that this program will be back in full, potentially even as early as this fall, which considering the news last month of the program suddenly being canceled and the AD telling Three Down Nation that there was no way the decision was ever going to be reversed. You talk about a positive trend. And by the way, full kudos to the people who have fought tooth and nail to try to save this program after the university made a very concerted effort to kill it because it appears they've won. It's certainly headed in a positive direction in terms of Simon Fraser University's football team getting back on the field and actually having a program again, Hodge. But this is all just a complete waste of time. Why were these conversations not had before the program was abruptly canceled? Why did they not talk to conferences in the NAIA? Why did they not talk to U Sports and have these conversations ongoing, all the while knowing that they still had one season left, 2023, in the Lone Star Conference? To me, I give full credit to all the people, especially the alumni and the players and the group of moms that have gotten together as well for not letting this thing die. But it's just a complete waste of time. And that waste of time lies at the feet of the administrators at Simon Fraser University. They could have gone about this in an actual professional way, like they like to talk about a lot of times at these institutions of supposed higher learning. They did not do that. They disrespected the student athletes in a major way. And I'm happy to see, as you said, that there are these discussions and it seems like it's going in a direction where the program will be reinstated, but it's a complete waste of time. That's what makes me the most upset in this situation. And yes, I'm somewhat biased as a former student athlete at a Canadian university, but I am almost sure that this would never have happened at the University of Guelph. And it's not like we had millions of dollars being pumped into our program at that time or were set up the way a Laval University as. The discussions would have been had and the program would not have just been pulled out without any at least background in terms of trying to figure out what could be next and communicating with the student athletes. So it's great. It's going in a positive direction. And I suppose this time wasting is now in the past, but it just to me does not seem like it's parallel 
with what Simon Fraser states it to be as an institution. That needs to change in the future. And I really hope that change is instituted by Dr. Joy Johnson and everyone beneath her in terms of the administration. I'm going to completely 100% disagree with you, Dunk. I agree with you wholeheartedly on the SFU issue, but I think that this process has been an extremely well-used source of time and energy because what this has done is this, and I'll call it a crisis. I don't think it's it's hyperbole to call it a crisis. What the, the response to this crisis has done across the country between stakeholders in amateur football, professional football, youth uh, sports football, whatever, what it's done is it's reminded people for the first time in a generation that when they can all get on the same page and fight for the same cause, they hold a lot of power. And too often in this business, when a change needs to be made or progress needs to be made, there are too many people with too many egos to all get on the same page or get in the same room and work for a common goal. And so what this has done, first of all, is it's shown any other school in the future who might want to cancel a program in a way that lacks accountability, that they're going to have a hell of a time doing it, which is a very strong dissuasion from anybody who wants to do that. The second thing is it's done is I think it's reminded, not empowered people, but I think it's reminded key stakeholders of the power that they hold because when they all get together and agree that something is not right and they want something to change, they have that power. I'm not sure they realize that. I'm not sure they needed, I I think they needed the reminder. And so as much as yes, this does feel like a waste of time because at the end of the day, we're replacing SFU football with SFU football. I think the process is very worthwhile for, for both of those reasons because we haven't had a crisis like this in a long time. And frankly, we need to be doing a better job. And I'm including the media in this. We all need to be doing a better job in this country of promoting football and making sure that football is in a healthy place because football matters to millions and millions of Canadians. And it's easy to forget that sometimes. That's granted, Hodgin. I agree with your disagreement. I think we're kind of saying the same thing. My issue is the time wasted by Simon Fraser University here. They could have spent this time treating their student athletes with respect and moving the program forward instead of canceling the program, looking like fools for the way that they went about it, and then now reinstating it. So I kind of think we're saying the same thing, but I totally know what you mean and get how you're explaining that this actually is a great thing overall that people have banded together. It's a good, I think it's a good process to go through. I think that's the right way to say it as much as yes, the administration at SFU should feel ashamed for how this all went down. The Ottawa Red Blacks signed Braylon Addison after he was released by the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Do you think the former all-star will be able to make an impact in the nation's capital? There's a possibility there, but the real reason that Addison has not been able to make an impact in the last two CFL seasons, 2021 and 2022, is just health. He needs to be able to show that he can get over these lower body injuries and stay on the field. In 2019, he was an absolute superstar, an all-star, a guy that they used in multiple ways in Hamilton and Tommy Condell's offense. And I think that's the only reason why the Tiger Cats have released Addison is because just hasn't been able to stay healthy. Now, he obviously has the relationship there with Sean Burke, the general manager in Ottawa, who spent a number of years as 
I'll call him the de facto GM with the Tiger Cats. Some people may or may not like that, but that's kind of what he was. So he's got that relationship there with Addison. And Addison obviously was close with Jeremiah Masoli, who he had his best season partly with in 2019, even though Dane Evans actually started more games than Masoli did that year. But on Addison's way up, it was Masoli, by and large part, that was the guy that was there with him and that was throwing him the ball, you know, even in 2018 when he was getting rolling. So I think there is the chance for him to make an impact in Ottawa, but he's got to be healthy. The best ability in pro football, pro sports, and really anything is availability, and Addison needs to make that paramount, and I hope he's getting healthy and can get back on the field at 100%. Yeah, I like the addition, and the one knock I'll say is right now as a team, I don't think that the weapons that the Red Blacks have in that receiving core are enough to scare anybody. Jalen Acklin, I think, has proven he's a legit number one receiver. Nate Bahar, I think, has finally started to really come into his own at the slot. Outside of that, they, they've kind of got a bunch of guys who, who are looking to either take that next step or find a gear that they used to have, right? COC Mariner, maybe he can he can pop off the page a little bit. Um, you know, Justin Hardy, a guy with a lot of NFL experience, maybe he could find that next gear. Then they've got a bunch of guys who are looking to find an old gear, like Quan Bray was fantastic with the Montreal Alouettes before his legal issues that came up. He's now back looking to try to refine that connection. Same thing with Shaq Evans. Shaq Evans was arguably the best receiver in the CFL in 2019. Well, he's done nothing the last two years as he struggled with injuries. I'll also throw Tavon Smith in that role. He was a guy who was super exciting with the Edmonton Elks when he came back from the NFL as a Canadian. Hasn't done a whole lot the last couple of years. So Braylon Addison is another guy you can kind of throw into that last category. And as much as the Red Blacks, I think, deserve maybe some criticism for not going out and getting a top tier receiver like a Eugene Lewis, like a Kenny Lawler, somebody like that, the prices that those receivers were commanding in free agency were off the charts. So I also understand the Red Blacks wanting to spend their money and allocate those funds elsewhere. So I don't think it should be taken for granted that Braylon Addison's going to reach his all-star status again. But what I do like about this move is that it adds kind of another lottery ticket, so to speak. The more lottery tickets you have, the better chance that one of them is going to hit. And if you look at a guy like Quan and Bray, I look at a guy like, like, like Shaq Evans, Devon Smith, this is another one in Addison where it's like, okay, this is boom or bust. But the plus side is you probably, and I don't know what he's making yet. We haven't seen the contract, but when it comes to Braylon Addison, at this point of the year, you're not going to get paid a lot of money because everybody's already spent their big money in free agency. And when you get cut at the 11th hour, you're going to have to play on the cheap. So I would assume, and I'm speculating here, but I think it's fair to speculate that the Red Blacks did not have to break the bank to get Braylon Addison, making this a low-risk, potentially high-reward move. Got a bunch of lotto tickets, and if one pops there between Shaq Evans, Braylon Addison, or Quan Bray, then the Red Blacks will have done well. And I think the base of that core is great. Jalen Acklin has an amazing rapport with Jeremiah Masoli, and a full season of those guys together, if they can both stay healthy could be dangerous. I really like Nate Bahar there. I think Tavon Smith just was in a situation where there were so many quarterbacks rotating in and out there in Edmonton that it was hard to develop some consistency. He's a guy that's a burner and that I think has some untapped upside in this league. So I like the targets there. Justin Hardy, a big physical body. And I like the way the Red Blacks went. Hodge, you alluded to it. And not spending big bucks to go get a Geno Lewis. And realistically, Kenny Lawler was never going anywhere other than Winnipeg anyways. So they invested those funds on the offensive line and a guy like 
Drew Desjardins, who became the highest paid offensive lineman ever in the CFL at over $250,000 to protect Masoli and keep him healthy. So I think the Red Blacks have a lot of potential, but they're going to have to live up to it at some point. The CFL introduced a number of new health and safety protocols for 2023, including the use of guardian caps in training camp, having medical assessment tents on sidelines, involving security and venue staff members in pregame medical meetings, and having staff from all nine teams complete additional professional development in the areas of emergency medical response and in-air emergency preparedness. What do you make of these changes? Any changes that improve health and safety of players, I think, is a win for everybody involved in this league automatically. So I applaud this move for the CFL. The one thing I'll say, and though the CFL did not allude to this in its release, I think it's fair to speculate that this is all being done in response to what happened with Amar, uh, DeMar Hamlin, defensive back for the Buffalo Bills this past season, when he went into sudden cardiac arrest on the field following a big hit and was administered CPR for 10 minutes and came very close to tragically losing his life on the field. Now, Hamlin has since made a full recovery. The story made international headlines, and I'm sure all of our listeners, even those who don't watch or follow the NFL, are familiar with it. You know, fortunately made a full recovery, spent about a week in hospital, I believe. But I think this is the CFL being proactive and saying, look, we could have, chances are low, but this is a violent game played by violent men. We could have a situation like a DeMar Hamlin situation. And how would we deal with that? What would our protocols be? How would we go about helping that situation the best we can? We know injuries are inevitable in football. It's an unfortunate part of the game. And that's why these players need to be protected to the best uh, of anyone's ability, because they're the ones putting their, their bodies and hearts and minds on the line when they suit up and go out to play for our entertainment. But these changes I think are very positive dunk. And, and, you know, when it comes to the tents and, and from what I get gleaned from the release, these tents are not going to be set up full time. They're going to be collapsible tents that you can put up on the sideline. You know, that's a, a tough conversation that I'm sure had to be had at CFL headquarters saying, look, if one of our players was, was undergoing cardiac arrest, what can we do to provide them at least some sort of privacy and, and and not be in the prying eyes of tens of thousands of people. So the, the the thought that a tent can be brought out to at least provide some protection for the player, for the sake of their families, for the sake of of teammates and people who who care about this individual, I think is very positive. So I like these changes a lot. In hindsight, it's things that the the CFL and NFL and other pro leagues probably should have had already in place. But hindsight is twenty twenty. And I'm glad that the CFL has decided to be proactive and not wait for, heaven forbid, their own DeMar Hamlin situation and uh, make these changes now. I think this is this is a home run. This is great. The one smaller note that I'll highlight quickly is the guardian caps, as they're being called. They'll be worn by offensive linemen, defensive linemen, running backs and linebackers at training camp and during practices throughout the season. And the idea behind these and from the testing that they've done is that they'll help to reduce concussions and impacts to the head. So there are some sort of numbers floating around that it can reduce concussions by 10 or more percent and obviously reduce the amount of head trauma that these players could potentially undergo in practice. So I think it's another step where the CFL is being proactive and we should 
give them applause when they do this because they don't necessarily do it all the time or at least haven't done it in the past. So it should help further protect the players, which are ultimately the people who provide the entertainment and all of the exciting games and plays and all that kind of stuff that we love to watch in the Canadian Football League. Time for Hodges Heritage Moment, Dunkster. On this day in 2002, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders signed Reggie Hunt to his first CFL contract. The native of Denison, Texas, recorded 497 total tackles, 27 sacks, and five interceptions over six seasons with Saskatchewan from 2002 to 2007 and was a four-time West Division All-Star. Hunt's best game came in 2003 when he recorded the most single-game tackles in CFL history with 16, a record that stood until 2019 when Simone Lawrence topped it, making 17 tackles in a Hamilton Tiger Cats victory over the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I'm curious, Dunk, what do you remember about Reggie Hunt? I remember Reggie Hunt flying around the field with that swaggy visor on and looking scary and thinking, (laughs) because I was playing, I think it was university or high school football at the time, that I would never want to see that dude on a field. And obviously that never happened because I never made the pros. That's a story for another day. But Hunt was an elite linebacker at his position and could move. I hate the cliche because it's used all the time, but legit sideline to sideline. And with that visor on, oh me, oh my. Look good, feel good, play good. <laughs> I I 100% agree with you. Sideline to sideline is the way to describe Reggie Hunt. Seemingly in on every defensive play. And I will say as like a preteen and young teenager who would hope that the Blue Bombers won the Labor Day Classic every year growing up, Reggie Hunt spoiled many of those Labor Day Sundays for my for me and my family. So kudos to Reggie Hunt for being elite. And then also it should be noted, his younger brother, Aaron Hunt, was a fantastic defensive tackle for many years with the BC Lions. So clearly some quality bloodlines there with the Hunt brothers being, you know, two of the best defensive players I've seen in the CFL over the last 20 years. So what you're saying is the Hunt brothers were great hunters. They were on the hunt. That is what 100% true. Yes. <laughs> Let's get to the three-minute drill. Legendary CFL quarterback Kevin Glenn has been named the head coach of a Detroit-area high school football team. Is that a smart hire? I think it is a smart hire. And in the spirit of his CFL career, I think Kevin Glenn should try to become the head coach of every Detroit-area high school before (laughs) he decides to hang him up. Because the man knows how to get, get around from team to team. The Tiger Cats released Canadian tight end Jake Burt just two years after taking him with the first overall pick in the 2021 CFL draft. Is that a surprise? It's not because I've had multiple personnel people around the league say to me from the moment he was selected that they thought Jake Burt was a phony. That's their words, not mine. And they thought he would be a bust. So it did not surprise me in the least. I hope he can potentially listen to this and use it as fuel to prove them wrong but he has yet to live up to that draft selection oh so high at the top of the draft. Calgary defensive lineman Mike Moore, Ottawa receiver Lamar Durant, Hamilton receiver and special team standout Levi Noel retired instead of reporting to training camp. Which player is the biggest loss for their team? I think the biggest loss is Levi Noel in Hamilton. I know he did not have a good season last year, split it between Ottawa and Edmondson, but not only is he a guy who can play almost like a Jake Burt, Nikola Kalinich type role on special teams, it's a big body dude to get down the field. 
That's a club that has been desperately trying to find the next great Canadian receiver and have just had absolutely no luck. So that is a spot I think they needed to get better. They've not. The Red Blacks signed Jalen Acklin and Jacob Ruby to contract extensions through 2024. Which of these moves do you like more? Dude, it's so close, but I got to go with Acklin because he has, I think, an even higher upside to reach in terms of being a number one receiver. And he's so tied to Jeremiah Masoli that it has to be Acklin. Ruby has done a great job in rebounding and sort of returning to form. And I think he still will be good for the Red Blacks. But to me, securing Acklin is the move that I like more. The BC Lions released defensive tackle Stephen Stove Richardson as he wouldn't have passed his physical for training camp. Do you think we'll see Stove back in the CFL someday? I don't know, Dunk, but I really hope so. Stephen Richardson, one of the most underrated players I think I've seen in the CFL in the last five years, was an unbelievably impactful interior defensive lineman and someone who should be playing pro football i just hope he can find a way to get healthy after what i believe it's two achilles tears brutal former first round nfl draft pick shane ray signed with the buffalo bills following a two-year stint with the toronto argonauts do you think he'll crack the bills roster i think it's an uphill battle for him to get there but it's a possibility he's going to be a cheap veteran pass rusher and the bills need that if they're ever going to get by the kansas city chiefs and reach those super bowl hopes that so many people so many fans i should say in bills mafia hope they get one day team east dominated the u sports east west bowl winning by a score of 37 to nothing what was your main takeaway from the annual canadian university football showcase game i just can't believe how one-sided it was like like the teams are generally made up of you know certain schools here from certain conferences here and, and whatever but they also will have certain players switch teams to try to make it a concerted effort to have it be a balanced game. How do you have a, you're you're allowed to switch player? How is it thirty seven nothing? Holy smokes! That that was a shocker. Wild. The Blue Bombers cut receiver Michael O'Shea, who also happens to be the son of head coach Mike O'Shea, after rookie camp. Could you imagine cutting your own son? No, I would make somebody else do it if that decision ultimately had to be made. That would be <laughs> awful. <laughs> Craig Dickinson said that Saskatchewan's offense will really emphasize the run game this season. Do you think that will actually happen, though? I think it better. Kelly Jeffrey was the running backs coach last year, and the running back duo of Jamal Moore and Frankie Hickson is one of the best in the CFL. And everybody knows if you're trying to take pressure off a young offensive line, run the damn ball. Right, that is something that 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 Jason Moss has not done well as an OC in this league. He didn't do it last year. He got fired. Hopefully, Kelly Jeffrey can do it because if they run the ball well and Trevor Harris is getting the ball out quick, that offensive line in Saskatchewan does not have to be very good for that offense to still be successful. So, do what you got to do. Take the pressure off the O line. Run the damn ball, and I think that'll help the Riders. We thank you as always for listening to the Three Down Nation podcast. Please join us again next week for another episode. J.C. Abbott will be back. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.